This is the iMarket Podcast, brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL, and Capital FM. My guest today is Aching Butler. She's the founder and CEO of Digital Beehive, a digital marketing and consulting company which services businesses across Africa. Aching is also the founding member and strategic advisor at Women Work, a community of over 5,000 women professionals and entrepreneurs. Aching has a clear passion for tech, mentorship, and coaching. She spends much of her time working on initiatives that have a positive social impact on the livelihood of young men and women training and coaching them on marketing and career progression. Aching has over 25 years experience while working at Coca-Cola Africa, Airtel Africa, Danone in France, and the African Leadership University in Mauritius. Her specialization is in business and marketing strategy, and over the last three years, she's become a digital marketing guru. In this episode, we talk about mentorship, leadership, and what she's doing to not just grow herself, but also progress others. Aching is multilingual and a native of Kenya and attributes her chosen career path to her passion and belief in Africa's potential. Aching shares her passion in building strong, meaningful businesses and brands for the discerning African consumer. I'm sure you'll enjoy this episode as much as I did. So today I'm very excited to host Aching Butler. She's a seasoned marketer and she'll tell us a bit about you know, her career journey. Uh, today we're going to focus on personal development as a marketer. What do we need to know? She has amazing nuggets of information. I recently heard her speak at the MSK conference and we were just blown away. So Aching, let's start by you sharing with us and the audience a bit about your career journey. What has brought you to where you are today? Wonderful. First of all, I'm so excited to be here, Waidera. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Karibu sana. Asante. So um, I've been a marketer forever and a day. If I'm counting, it's <laughs> plus 25 years. Ish. But, you know, it feels like I started just the other day. I think that's the exciting thing about a marketing career. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked um, across multinationals for many years in different mm-hmm. in FMCG, telecommunications. I've worked in tourism as well and in tertiary education. Wow. Yeah. What are some of the brands or corporates you worked for? So I worked at Coca-Cola across the region, so covering many countries and all the brands, um, especially the sparkling brands, as we used to call them those days. Um, I've worked with Airtel Africa across 17 countries. Um, I've worked with In Danone. Africa? In Africa. Wow. 17 countries in Africa. So Francophone as well as Anglophone Africa. Um, I realize now that there was there was a reason I learned French and that it was easier than chemistry. Ah. So it came in handy. So you do speak French? I do. Fran- you learned in high school or High uni? school as well as uni. My first degree is in advanced French and German. Wow. Okay. Okay. Nice. Good to know. You're multilingual. I didn't remember <laughs> that. Okay. Yes. And um, then I worked for Danone in France, but covering Africa. And then also worked in tertiary education with the African Leadership University. Fantastic. Amazing experience. I know our paths crossed when you were leaving Coca-Cola. I was joining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that's when you went to Airtel. Yes. Okay. Interesting. What are the some of the key things you could say you got out of that? You know, you have regional experience, you have corporate experience, different verticals, different industries. What what did you what what's your one or two, three key takeaways from that experience? I think the first thing, and I, I like to talk about this because I think sometimes we underestimate what amazing careers we can build in Africa. So for me the first thing yeah. is that you can actually build a stellar career in Africa. 
a career where you have a lot of autonomy, you have a lot of accountability, you have decent budgets, and even where you don't have decent budgets, you have a lot of room to be creative. You can be creative. Completely, you know? Yes. Um, So for me, that's one of the big things. And I, I like to talk about that because sometimes I feel, especially with people who've gone and studied overseas and have started their careers overseas, they don't realize that you can build an amazing career on the continent and that it gives you so much more latitude to create and to grow. So I think for me, that's if anything, that's the biggest, biggest um, sort of nugget that I would love to share. But what about those naysayers who say, you know, it's so hard to work in Africa. It's so hard to be a marketer in Africa. There's no data. There's no, you know, all those things that are said about working in Africa. What did, what was your experience like? You know what? I think, Everything is a function of the lens through which you look through it. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's no data per Mm -hmm. se in the way that you would find data for, let's say, a European country. Mm -hmm. But the data is there if you look for it. You know, you just have to go and get it, you know, and you don't have to break the bank. Let me give you an example. When I used to work at Airtel, I really loved the fact that we were targeting the youth. We we were in 17 countries. Um, A couple of our biggest countries were like Nigeria, Zambia, Gabon. And, and DRC was one with huge potential as well. And one of the things we always needed to do was get insights on the youth because this is their playground. Yeah. They're on digital, they're on their phones all the time. And it's no different in Niger versus DRC versus Kenya versus Zambia, for Correct. example. And so every time I went on a market visit, there'd be a day when I'd jump, on, jump into my jeans, my T-shirt, my cap, my sneakers, and I'd go to the university and hang out with these students. And buy them, you know, they usually have a little tuck shop or whatever it is, or a little shop, kiosk, buy them, you know, Cokes, and we'd sit on the grass or on the benches and just chat. My best insights came from those informal Focus groups. Out. <laughs> yeah, it was completely <laughs> informal and free. It cost me a few soft drinks and I got the richest insights from that. Or just talking to the women in the market. I remember in, um, I think it was Chad going and talking to these women. And we made a massive discovery about why one of our products was not moving versus the competitive product. And it was, it was all it needed was having a conversation with the mamas in the market. So, yeah, I think that's really important yeah. what you've said, um, going into the market, doing your trade visits. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it important for a marketer? I mean, you know, marketing looks so glamorous, like we sit behind our computers all day, you know, writing nice, doing nice PowerPoints. Why was it so important for you to be in the trade in the different African markets that you've worked in? What did you find that was similar or what did you find that was very different across different markets? First of all, it's important because that's the pulse. That's where you understand what's going on with the consumer. Now, it may not be directly related to your brand, but you can certainly pick up an insight that can inform yeah. a strategy that you will then develop. Yeah. You know, so that's it, it's it's a very important way of understanding what consumers care about, whatever the segment might be, the, the target audience might be, but understanding what they care about, how they live their lives, and then being able to plug your brand into into what you find out yeah. uh, and develop strategies that then can resonate, um, you know, and be much more effective, much more relevant. So then how do you, how would you, because you've worked for global brands like Coca-Cola, Danone, so there's, say there's a a global campaign coming out Mm -hmm. and then you've been asked to execute it in, you know, 12 different markets in Africa. What, what did you do differently? Did you just take the campaign, plug and play or what, you know, because maybe global is saying, ah, this is the campaign. Don't change it. We've, you know, done, we've worked on this for 24 months. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a change, just take it in, go and deploy in Nigeria and Kenya and wherever. 
What what was the experience with that? So I think there's a couple of ways that you can approach that. One is to take the campaign and I'm going to say localize, but there's different levels to localizing. One is localizing it where you just use local talent in a campaign. Now, that will only make sense and will only work if the insight governing the campaign makes sense and, and you know, travels, can travel across. And yeah. I'll, I'll share an example in a, in a sec. So you, you can localize the campaign and just change the talent because the insight is so strong. And when you localize that campaign, even if the TVC, for example, has, you know, sort of local talent, you know, African talent or people of color, um, you've got the opportunity of using other um, other communication elements and really tailoring those radio, for example, right. even, you know, digital, um, how you engage ac- the activations that you do on the ground, the experiential activations that you might choose to do on the ground. Right. You've obviously got digital PR or PR in general. Right. So there's many ways that you can really get local and you can leverage some of the local resources or local channels or local tools to then, you know, transmit that message. Sometimes the insight might not be as relevant for an African market. Yes. And so So what do you do? It's it's tricky. <laughs> you can't always you can't be the rebel because you know, if anything is a career move limiting move, that is. So sometimes with bigger global brands, you know, with global brands you don't have that much flexibility. So you can't be the rebel. It's it's just um it's it just doesn't it won't work in your favor and you know could get you to lose your job or you know just get you blacklisted so to speak. But um in those cases, sometimes you can actually use the TV as is because it's a global, um, globally produced TV and then use local channels to then translate, translate for your local markets. So I'll give you an example. Many, many years ago, we had this big global campaign that we needed to roll out in our markets. And I remember going on road shows with a couple of ladies from my, or a couple of people from my team to sh- uh, pitch this campaign and share this campaign with our bottling partners at the time. The first reaction when we first shared the campaign before we started workshopping it, the first reaction, I got so much pushback. In fact, one of the ladies in my team had just joined and I remember her telling me, at that meeting, I asked myself if I'd made the right decision to join because it was one of those really tough meetings. But what we did is we looked at the campaign direction and said, how do we adapt this for our markets? Our markets are predominantly informal trade. Yes. So how do we take this and translate it for informal trade in a way that works? And then how do we take the other elements? Like if there's a key theme, um, how do we take that theme and bring it to life on radio in in a genre or using ways, uh, you know, like ways or styles or, or genres that work for our local markets? And honestly, that was the most successful campaign we'd had. And the brand grew faster than it had grown in the previous five years, just on the basis of that campaign. And we were able to sort of pitch it and sell it in such a way that we were able to get almost double the investment to fly, to run this campaign, to really just revamp the brand. So there's ways that you can do it where if you have a mandate that the TVC must go as is, how do you use other communication elements, other touch points to then localize and really, uh, you know, push the, the campaign and drive the, you know, the brand results and the business results that you need to. Yeah, we need to really challenge, especially those of us who work with global brands. Mm-hmm. Um, do we have a seat on the table to share our, you know, what we would like it to look like when the global teams, you know, come in and ask for input and share, you know, your research on this? Are we 
you know, being very passive about it or actually aggressively saying. And I remember, because I, I also worked for Coca-Cola, because Nigeria was such a big market for Coca-Cola globally, I think top 20, mm-hmm. they would come and, and, or we would go and say, look, as you're developing this campaign, these are some of the things you need to think about for the Nigerian market. And they would listen. Um, or even ensuring, I know Diage has been doing this very well, ensuring that the global brand team has representation from people from different parts of the continent, different part of the world. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're developing a Johnny Walker campaign or a Guinness campaign, you have somebody who has lived and worked in Nigeria, who's sitting in London, somebody who's lived and worked in Brazil, who's part of that team. So it actually becomes, and I think that's what we need to do more yeah. of. What do you think? Absolutely spot on. You know, and I think, you know, Africa and Countries in Africa are increasingly getting a voice. Yes. Or I love how you, the, you know, the, the, the description you've used, which is a seat at that table. Yes. Increasingly. I mean, I remember in, I, I did, I, I worked in Coke for 14 years and I remember moving from where we had a lot of local sort of independence and autonomy to a situation where everything kind of swung to the other side of the pendulum. And it was like, you know, it's global, it's global, it's global, to somewhere where we kind of balance, found the global space. And so Interesting. where you can, I totally agree with you, you know, push for that agenda as much as you can, even in an organization where you don't have that voice, find a way to really get your perspective heard because Africa is a big market. Yeah, it is. And has huge potential. Absolutely. So, you know, you casually dropped, you worked for Coca-Cola for 10 years. You said you've worked in corporate for 20 25 plus, but who's counting? Wow, okay. <laughs> Don't look it. Then you did something interesting. So you've worked in all these amazing corporates, amazing brands, award-winning campaigns, um, worked on the continent, you know. Then you decide one day you woke up. I don't know if it was one day you woke up and you said, <laughs> you're leaving all this and you're going to start your own business. Tell us about that. Wow, that was a journey and a half. So I used to, when I used to work at Coke, I, we used to always joke about it and I'd always say, I'll grow old and gray hair. I'll be there with a bent back <laughs> and like a walking stick and nobody is getting me off these premises until the day I die. And we always used to laugh about that, you know. But, um, you know, having done many years in, in, in corporate, you know, Coke, as you said, Airtel, I worked in Danone, I worked at African Leadership University and it was a great journey. But at some point, you start to get a sense of restlessness, almost like, what more? And I remember when I when I left, I took a sabbatical after I left uh, the university, um, ALU, where I was CMO. Okay. I took a sabbatical. And originally, I thought I'll do three to six months as I kind of reflect. And I was doing interviews at the time as well with a couple of other corporates. And it became an eight-month, maybe nine-month uh, sabbatical. Okay. And one of the big reflections for me, I'd gotten involved or done work in digital marketing, but it was mostly where I'd find the right talent, put them in place, and we drive the agenda. And I remember in Airtel, we really shifted the needle in terms of how much we were investing in digital and really demonstrating the return and starting to educate and, you know, get the organization behind this digital agenda. So I started getting quite actively involved in digital, um, probably not in as much depth, but, you know, more from a breadth perspective. Okay. Um, so when I took my sabbatical, one of the things I did was really, re- first of all, eat a lot of good food because I was in France for those eight months. Oh, wow. Uh, drink lots of good wine, but also reflect a lot. Yes. And I decided to um, partner in setting up a digital agency after speaking to a number of country, you know, friends who were industry leaders uh, by that time, former colleagues. And I wanted to kind of understand because in my mind, I was like, there is an opportunity with digital and I wanted to understand what's their struggle. 
So did this with across Nigeria, Uganda, um, Burkina Faso, DRC, you know, um, Kenya, just a number of different people. I think it was seven countries, if I remember correctly. And there was the the top three or four themes was always they were really struggling with digital. It was either very expensive to access it or you'd get um they said expensive. Yes, because you're going to the big agencies who who right. had who were so, positioned and visible. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So for them it was for many organizations it's very expensive to access world-class digital uh, marketing or in some instances you access the digital marketing but the capability is probably not at the level. You know, I remember yeah. interviewing people who said they were digital marketers and they would write blogs. Right. So there was such yeah. disparate understandings of what digital marketing is. And so I thought that's actually what triggered me. And, and I thought, you know what, let me partner with this lady who was a very seasoned digital marketer. And let's start this journey. So is it digital marketing or is it marketing in a digital world? You know, is is digital the capability or is it the media, the medium, you know, because we don't say you're a traditional you, you, you're not a TV marketer or radio mm-hmm. marketer or, you know, mm-hmm. we say you're a marketer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, good point. I think we are <laughs> marketing in a digital world. To be, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, we call the, 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 I guess we call it digital marketing, but it really is, it has shifted from digital marketing as a standalone where we'd look at sort of classical marketing or traditional marketing or digital marketing to the reality, which is we are marketing in a digital world. Yeah, because I think one of the yeah. the mistakes we make as marketers is we focus on one aspect of marketing, which is promotion. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, the communication, the ads, the messaging, the sexy side of marketing. Yeah. Um, but if you're thinking about it in a digital world, things like your your distribution changes, people can now buy things online for Absolutely. you know a lot of these uh, FMCG products. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the other things change, you know. So it's not just promoting the product digitally. It's the whole sphere of it. So, and I'll come back to your, your shift to entrepreneurship. But mm-hmm. let me ask you this. And what does marketing in a digital world mean to you? Yeah, what does it mean to you in this, especially this time we live in? Because now we are seeing a lot of disruption from the this Black Swan event that we, we're going through right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Digital, I think, is going to be at the heart of everything that we do, if it isn't already. And so brands that are still in denial and sort of still saying, I just need a social media marketing campaign, and that's going to be the the, the silver bullet, I think will find themselves in trouble. Yes. Brands that don't snap out of it and realize that digital has to be at the heart of everything we do will suffer or will struggle or may not even survive. So um, when we talk about, you know, we use the term omni-channel. Right. But I think in hindsight, beyond just thinking omni-channel, I think we need to be thinking about digital omni-everything, you know, being omnipresent, so to speak. Yes, Because I love the example you've given, which is distribution, you know. I mean, look at what Twiga Foods has been able to do. Yes. I love what they've been able to do is take something that would have been otherwise very heavy duty and just find a way to to leverage the power of technology and suddenly transform and create this whole new way of doing business, this whole new way of making, you know, certain products available. 
And and actually, it's quite interesting. You mentioned Twigger Foods because at the MSK Awards, the recent MSK Awards that just passed, um, Peter Jonjo, who is mm-hmm. the group CEO for Twigger Foods, was the guest speaker. Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing he said is um, the pandemic obviously accelerated their digital transformation. Mm-hmm. So whereas 25% of their orders or their sales were coming from their online app, Mm-hmm. In the last two years, it's moved to 75%. Wow. 75% of their revenue is not That's coming. That's incredible. Yes. That's incredible. So they've grown, I think he said it was 5x. I can't remember. Crazy numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter, I should have Peter on this podcast to tell us about what, you know, what he's done differently. <laughs> you should. Yeah. So again, and then one of the things I think takeaways he said is, if you had not been preparing for digital transformation and the pandemic hit you, you struggled. Mm-hmm. You, it it was slow. You struggle, but if you had been preparing, you might not have been a hundred percent there, right? Mm-hmm. But at least you had, you know, you knew this is something you need to do. Maybe yeah. you had a blueprint or something, mm-hmm. and so you're able to now execute. Yeah. So what does that say about as marketers? What we need to do to be thinking about the future? We have to lead that conversation, and I, I think, and maybe that sounds like an exaggeration, but. We have the opportunity to introduce to the organization different pers- pers- like different perspectives on how you can harness the power of technology and digital. Because we we drive the conversations on the brands. Right. And the brands oftentimes are the business. Yeah. And even if you're not like a fast moving consumer good, even if you're an IT software company. Yeah. That is still a brand in and as of itself. Yes. And so how do you market that? How do you position? How do you market? How do you, um, you know, sell that brand? Yeah. It starts with marketing. And so I think we're in a very unique place to lead that conversation um, or lead other functions within the organization t- towards making digital the center or making digital and technology a central part of what we do and how we do things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I agree with you. Marketing is the strategic engine yes. for any business. Yeah. So, and it we can only realize it if we stop just focusing on promotion and also the other areas of marketing, which is your yeah. product, your product, your what price are you going to the market with mm-hmm. your distribution and what have you absolutely so just going back now to your entrepreneurial journey so you started your agency mm-hmm. and then were your phones ringing or was it quiet you know because you know everybody in the industry you've worked all around <laughs> africa you got you know guys in europe the states you worked for great brands i'm sure they're like hey a ching hi we have business for you how did that go <laughs> oh my goodness that is such a million dollar question <laughs> i tell you so Yes, I know a lot of people. And a lot of people, when I told them what I was doing, were all like, we'll be with you. We've Go got for you. We've got you. Uh-huh. you know? <laughs> but it's really surprising how the people you expect support from won't necessarily support you. And the support comes from the most unexpected places. So why I know is that? A lot of, why is I that don't know. I don't know if it's had just you that built they your bridge. Had you burnt bridges somewhere? Not or at Were all. you not networking enough? <laughs> what, what is it? And I'm asking this because yeah. many of us are, you know, we've maybe we've been working in corporate for 10, 15 years. We're thinking, you know, now I'm going to go start my own consultancy and my phone will be ringing. All these people I know, they'll be my customers. So, yeah. So here's the thing. I have a wonderful network. I mean, if you tell me, oh, do you know somebody in, I don't know, Ethiopia, in Niger, in DRC, in Nigeria? I, I mean, if I landed in those countries, 
there's I will not lo- lack places to go and you know dinners right. back to back to back because I have many many um, contacts and friends in some in in many countries across the continent. Right. But the interesting thing is, I got business from some friends. I got business from former colleagues, uh, but more, I'd say more from former colleagues than from friends. Okay. If that makes sense. And I think, I'd say it's because they knew what I could do professionally mm-hmm. and they could trust me. Mm-hmm. Whereas your friends, you know, you're always just kind of having a good time. And they sort of know that you're this person in this position. Maybe they don't necessarily understand quite what you do. It's true. That's so true. it took quite a while. Actually, I can't even say that my friends have referred people to me. It's more of my former colleagues and then clients that I've worked with who've then referred people to me. Yeah. And that's that's pretty true because I think we don't we don't integrate our professional lives yeah. with our personal lives, mm-hmm. which I think is, you know, is an error because we are who we are at home or at work. Yeah. Uh, interesting story for me. I have a friend who runs her own company mm-hmm. and she was looking for an advisory board. She mm-hmm. was putting together a board mm-hmm. and she came to, say, to me and said, I'm looking for somebody in marketing or PR who has a background in digital mm-hmm. to join my board. Mm-hmm. And I said, what about me? Like, why are you <laughs> passing me up because I'm your like, friend? What kind of question and is that like, anyway? I don't know why there are, I'm looking for this. I said, but that's, you've, de- you've described me. Yes. But she's like, no, 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 no. Go look for somebody. <laughs> But it was, I can't blame her. Yeah. Was I, am I really, you know, do we really integrate our personal professional lives? Yeah. 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 So your former, think, yeah, I yeah. get that. Yeah. I think you're right. I think we, we don't. I mean, and over time, I've then done some work for one or two close friends. But okay. to be honest, it, it doesn't compare to, to the referrals I've gotten from former colleagues or somebody that I've happened to meet at a function. At, on Saturday, I was meeting a new potential client and there was an event going on on Saturday afternoon, actually. And there was an event going on in the same venue, in the same garden. And people assumed we were part of that event and they kept coming to say hello. And in the end, I've got three business leads just from nice. a two-hour chat with a potential client, you know, which was great. Yeah. So I think, and you see, those are people I got a chance to talk to while right. I was there yeah. and tell them what I do. And they're like, oh my God, we need exactly that. So sometimes, you know, you, you mentioned, did I not network enough? Probably I'm networking much more now because I'm much more deliberate about it since becoming an entrepreneur versus when I was in corporate where we networked, but it was it was different. Yes, it was. You know? So what's different now? What are your networking tips now? What, what does that look like? Actually, good question. So first of all, what are the kind of groups we're involved in or engaging with? And, and the wonderful thing about networking now is that you can network online. Absolutely. It makes it so easy. Just perched there on I'm your couch. I'm telling you. It's, it's awesome. Yes. So you can network and there's lots of really, really, um, really, really good groups. Really resourceful is the word I was looking for that you can actually plug into. I mean, one of the first groups I joined that has been completely the biggest blessing on my journey has been Women Work Network. Yes. They, first of all, it's 5,000 women. And it's you know 5, how... 5,000? 5,000 wow. women. Okay. I absolutely loved this group because literally, if I needed anything, I need an accountant that's inexpensive because I'm a startup and I'd get like 15, 15 names from people who've actually worked with independent um, accountants who are affordable, accessible, be, you know, for startups. You know, one time I even posted something because my client was renovating his new office and needed an interior decorator, uh, an interior designer to do his new offices up. 
And I posted there and I sent him like 15 names with links to all their work and portfolio and everything. So I found that group to be extremely resourceful, extremely supportive, you know. And when you think about networking as an entrepreneur, be open to networking in spaces that you didn't network in before. Okay. So in corporate, sometimes we network with other corporates. Yes. And that's not necessarily where your business will come from or where you'll be able to sort of find cost-effective ways to, to operationalize your business. So plug into networks of entrepreneurs, plug into networks yeah. of women, you know, women in development, plug into networks of, you know, SMEs. You know, you can, you need to be selective, obviously, because it can be very noisy because many of them are on WhatsApp yeah. and you can get your phone. I mean, you can get so bombarded with messages yeah. sometimes. So you want to really be selective. Yeah. But I would say that that for me has been one of the most um, sort of beneficial ways that I've been able to network. It's through very targeted, um, you know, connecting in a very targeted way to groups. And I think one of the things you've done very well, you might not know this. Um, no, you probably know this. You know this is visibility. So the first time I got to hear you speak was at a Rotary Club meeting. Mm-hmm. Remember? The yes. Rotary, my club, Rotary Club of Lavington Gioni. Lovely. You were, you were brought in by Betty Olo Anderson, yes. Yes. Um, who's one of our directors. And I, I listened to you speak. And, I, and remember, I, I didn't know you before. I, I yeah. knew of you, you know, from your days of Coca-Cola and Danone and Airtel. Well, like, listen to you, and I actually wrote down your name, and I wrote down your phone number because mm-hmm. you shared it with everyone. Yes, and I saved it, and I said, mm-hmm. one day I'm going to meet this woman, <laughs> and then the next time, so time passed a couple of months or so, and then you are one of the speakers at the MSK conference that recently happened mm-hmm. uh, in uh, end of October in Mombasa. You gave an amazing presentation on on digital marketing, and again, I said. No, now I said, now I want her on this podcast. Yeah, this this woman is brilliant. So for me, that's a form of networking. You're putting yourself out there. Yes. Were you doing that before, even when you were in corporate? Were you, you know, being very visible in what you're doing and, you know, sharing, you know, your journey? And, and these are, I'm sure, free engagements. You're not being paid to be a speaker. There's that. You can be paid to be a speaker. Yeah. And that's another way of also, you know, growing your business. Mm-hmm. But what were you... How, how how different is it now as an entrepreneur? You know, I love that question. I'll tell you why. Because interestingly, in corporate, you're almost visible by virtue of the organization you work for. Exactly. And you'll know more yeah. than anyone. Yeah. You know, when you work with a big multinational, your name is already out there. And I always handled regional jobs. So I was never sort of marketing in Kenya, so to speak. I, I sat here because it was the HQ. But like, for example, when I was in telecommunications, it wasn't our biggest market at all. So I was always out in some country or another on the continent. Right. So I never really marketed as aggressively or, or marketed. I, I was never really as visible, um, but I was visible almost by default because I worked with a big multinational. Okay. Now I'm much more deliberate and I made a conscious decision to give these talks. Many of them are not paid. Some are, but it's because... I had also pivoted. Remember, I came from a world of what we used to call traditional marketing. I don't know if that term is still used or if it's classical marketing. And I pivoted into digital marketing. Correct. And I needed to be visible as a, you know, as a professional working in the digital marketing space. Yes. Working with companies to help them pivot into what it means to mark to be marketing in a digital world. So, um, 
Yeah, so I've been quite deliberate about that. And I, I've given a lot of talks, um, not just to like Rotary, but even to organizations that invite me to speak. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I brought the Rotary example because yeah. you said going to places where you wouldn't typically go. Exactly. Now, you didn't know who the audience was. You know, maybe you're told, OK, there'll be other professionals there. Mm-hmm. But we were from all different. Our Rotary Club is made of you know people from different professional yeah. professions. Yeah. And I'm sure there are many people there who are like, aha, uh-huh, I need to contact this lady. This is an amazing, you know, what she's doing is just really amazing. So let's talk about you pivoting because now you are this traditional marketer mm. for many years. Mm. Yeah? Many, many, many. many. <laughs> <laughs> but that's great. And then yeah. now you jump into digital at yeah. a late stage in your career. Mm-hmm. Was that deliberate by you found yourself there? You know, why? <laughs> Do you know, I sat one day and I thought to myself, you know, I'd start, like I said, I'd, I'd always had teams or brought on teams or individuals to set up the digital function within a number of organizations. You know, in Airtel, we were very quite deliberate about it. Um, ALU, we did a lot of digital, you know, it was the way we marketed because we didn't have the, the massive budgets that big organizations like Coca-Cola have, you know. But one day as I was deliberating um, during my uh, sabbatical, I remember thinking, I can't do more of the same. As I said, I was I was talking to a couple of um, organizations um, exploring some, you know, CMO opportunities. And I said, do I just jump into the next corporate? When every time you look at a job on LinkedIn, especially those European jobs, because I was keeping my options open, mm-hmm. the key skill they wanted was an understanding of digital marketing. Very true. And it's gotten to the point, like in Europe, you will not get a job if you don't have digital marketing. Very true. And a, a solid enough understanding of yeah. this space. It's no longer a specialist skill. It's no longer a specialist. Yeah. So a you, general yes. marketer, generalist needs to have that skill. Absolutely. Yeah. And so for me, it was a bit of a wake up call where I was like, okay, if I continue doing more of what I've done, I will wake up one day and be obsolete. Absolutely. And that thought was the most frightening thought. It 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 made me snap into action and I decided this is the space I'm going into. I'm going to throw myself into this. I'm going to learn as much as I can and surround myself with people who have the expertise to implement in this space. Okay. And so that was really the driving force when I set up the digital agency. Is it, isn't it very humbling that, you know, you talk about learning. So you've been this traditional marketer for years. You know everything. You can do a marketing plan with your eyes closed. But now you have to go into this learning mode. Mm-hmm. And digital is always changing. Yes. So how do you stay on top of trends and, you know, and learning and staying ahead of, you know, of even your clients? Yeah. So I'm a really great believer in continuous learning we never stop learning continuous learning continuous le- it doesn't matter how many years old you are in I'm my, telling I've, you. I've lived many decades let's not even count <laughs> but i always i'm always learning yeah. and it's always been the case and you know for me keeping keeping ahead with the trends keeping ahead with learning I'm always online. I'm always reading. So I work across different um, now as as as, um, as a person who runs agency and I lead the strategy, um, the strategy um, sort of work stream of, of, of how we operate. Okay. It means I have to read a lot when I'm working with a new client and clients come from different sectors, different industries. Um, some are, are, are social enterprises, some are commercial enterprises. One of the things you have to do is know what's going on 
what are the trends? We do a lot of benchmarking because we can't have a strategic conversation if we don't know what's going on in the industry, what the competitive landscape looks like, etc. So I read a lot. I'm always online, you know, digging up information, um, you know, case studies, um, you know, learnings on what's working, what's not, learning on learnings on what's changing and what that means for what the client needs to do if they're going to survive. So I'm constantly learning. And the good thing, all that stuff is available online. At the click of a button. There you go. Sometimes when somebody asks me, um, what do you think is, is, is going to happen with X? I always smile because I think, but imagine if they just clicked on Google, who is man's best friend <laughs> after, do- after a dog. <laughs> They'll be surprised at how much information is out there yeah. for free. Okay. And, and, and speaking of learning, um, mm-hmm. what is that one book you think every marketer should read? You know, I even carried it. Just in case this question would come so, up. Let's see. <laughs> this book, this book, this book has been 90 days. The first 90 days by Michael D. Watkins. And it's not a marketing book, but I'll tell you why it's the book I recommend. You know, I don't know if it's in this book or elsewhere. It says that when you change jobs, even if you change jobs within the organization you already work in, it's 80% as difficult as going to a totally new company yes. or industry. And that's a good lesson. Let's just pause there mm-hmm. because, um, you know, I, I do a lot of recruitment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, when I look at people's CVs where you've been at a job for a year, two years, and I'm thinking, what is going on in this person? How hard it is to move from one job to the, like, yeah. I'm like, you know, you know, when you're at Cook, you're saying you'll see that. You're like, I mean, I said I'm saying in Diage till. Till the end. <laughs> I cannot move to an act. It's so hard. Yeah. It's hard from a culture perspective, yeah. learning processes, policies. So mm-hmm. you're saying even within the same company, it's still 80% as hard. Absolutely. Okay. I saw that. I can't remember if the statistic was from this book or elsewhere, but it's definitely a statistic. Because you're, you're moving into a new role. And even if you know the people, sometimes you don't always know the people. Right. Maybe it's a different function or, you know, function or a different geography yeah. um, with different cultural dynamics. You know, yes. so it's, it's difficult, you know. And this book, what I loved about it, it talks to the first 90 days where it gives you pointers on different, different things to think about when you move to a new role. Okay. But what I love is that a lot of it is learnings that you can actually apply. So it talks about things like how you accelerate your learning. It talks about, you know, deliver what, what you, you know, what you're going to showcase in the first 90 days. How of you'll show impact. Those early wins, those yes. low hanging fruit, early wins, how you'll show that impact so that they don't start wondering if you were the right hire, you know, and, how and, you build and, your and, team. And on that, I think mm-hmm. sometimes what we do as uh, marketers or brands, say you, you come in as a brand manager yeah. and there's a campaign that had been running and, you know, and it's going well and you know the brand has its positioning and then you say me in my first 90 days i'm going to change the brand positioning the vis the logo everything <laughs> to show impact <laughs> so what's the difference like wh- <laughs> yeah and that's a, you know it's a classical mistake it's so easy to come and just scuttle things and uh-huh. just have scatter everything instead of taking you know? the legacy that if it's working the yeah. brand is in growth mm-hmm. so if it's declining that's different yes and then taking somebody else's legacy and continuing to run with it. That's yeah. so imp- I don't see a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. It's so important because <clears throat> if you come in with the assumption that you know everything and that you're the one who has come now mm. to change everything, first of all, you're losing, you're losing the momentum mm. of what your predecessor may have created. Mm-hmm. You're also 
whether it's spoken or unspoken, you're implying that the people there don't know what they're doing. Right. So you actually are not creating alliances and building a sense of team and a sense of collaboration and a sense of collective accountability. If anything, you're probably ruffling a few feathers and it's going to come back and bite you. And I'm not saying that you don't change things. If you need to change things, you can. But it's looking at whether it's needed or not for yeah. a start, but yeah. also how you do it. And one of the things that's really nice in this book, they talk about creating alliances. Now, anyone who's ever changed jobs or gone into a new organization knows you've got to create alliances. You, no man is an island. Correct. You can't rock up there and just feel I'm the superstar, I'm the genius, I know it all and I'm going to do this because you're not going to do it on your own. You're going to do it through people. So how you create alliances, how you understand, the time you take to understand what's going on through those interactions that you have can actually be the make or break yes. in terms of how you move forward. Yes. So I think it's so important. Relationships, I think, and how you relate with people is such an important part of being um, successful. And successful comes in many layers. Yes, there's the business success, but there's also those relationships you build. You know, the, the you might build that one relationship where that person goes and drops your name in a certain environment and it opens up your next opportunity. There so there's so many layers to think about. There you go. So moving from, you know, corporate to entrepreneur, mm -hmm. what has shocked you or not shocked you? <laughs> hmm. No, actually, that's a, a good question. I'd like to okay. respond to that. Great. Um, I think... The thing that I'm, I'm not going to say maybe it shocked me, but it was quite an eye opener is that sometimes we make assumptions about things and it can cost us. And I'll give us very specific example. When I first became an entrepreneur, I partnered. We since um, ended that partnership. Okay. And I transitioned with the bulk of the team into this new entity that I work with. And I transitioned with a couple of clients who made the decision to transition with me. Now, we make the assumption that it's going to work because you know someone. And so my one of my biggest In terms of the partnership. In terms of the partnership. Okay. That you have to have a partnership agreement and make it airtight. Okay. So regardless of what your relationship had been, exactly. formalize that agreement. Formalize that. Why and is I'll that important? It, it's important and, and I'm, I'm, I'm using it to answer the question because, you know, you always assume that it's just going to be, it's always going to be a bed of roses, but roses have thorns. Yeah. And so it can really poke in, you know, and, and hurt, you know. Yeah. Um, so whether you're the best of buddies or whether you're just acquaintances bringing in different skills because together you can do something amazing, you know, really lock it down in a partnership agreement that is airtight, that clearly outlines what each of you bring to the party, but also that clearly takes into account exit clauses or exit considerations, if at all you need to have yeah. that. Because b going into business and being in business, it's it, it, you know, it you could be so successful so quickly or it could take a long while and it could cause such a strain in the process, whatever the case in might both, be. In yeah, both ways. You, know, could, yeah. you don't want to be having to break up a business when you've become a, 
a billion dollar business because yeah. that's going to hurt. Uh, yeah. And we've know? seen that happening. There are examples globally where that has happened. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So for me, it was it was the biggest. It was a, it was a wake up call. Um, it wasn't a shock because I think I had seen it coming. There were many, many indications. The writing is always on the wall, I say. I always say. Um, but it was it was it was an upheaval. And I think okay. I was just very fortunate that, you know, I worked with a great team who were so committed to what we were doing and to me because of the relationship that we had. And so we were able to transition. And I also worked with people or clients who with whom I had a really good relationship. Okay. And so, you know, I was able to keep going. That's a really good lesson. Huge, huge lesson. Speaking of lessons, mm-hmm. what is the one thing the pandemic has taught you to do or not to do as a marketer? <laughs> okay, it's taught me to really avoid the fridge. But I mean, seriously, <laughs> because it's right there and we're working at home. But no, on a serious note, um, it's really taught me about the importance of balance. Okay in our lives. And I think we we took it for granted before, you know, because you could get up and go and, you know, get up and meet your friends and take a break, uh, get up for a nice and go out for a nice meal, get up and go for a nice walk, you know, and so on. And when we were confined, it really made me realize how many opportunities I squandered before COVID to actually make time for people I value, for people I care Uh about. And also just to do things for my own well-being, you know, yes. whether it's exercising or, you know, those kind of things. So for me, it's really taught me the balance. In fact, I had to be very deliberate um, in the last few months and actually set up a home office in a separate room because I loved working in my living area. But it reached a point where the work would kind of never stop. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and you suddenly find yourself getting really exhausted because it's mental. It's 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 mental work. It's it thinking work. Yeah, you know, and I had to get very deliberate and set up a room and say, "This is now the office, and I will work in the office." And when I step out of the office, I'm stopping because I need to stop. I need to rest. I need to decompress. So it's really taught me a lot about things to do with balance. You know, eating well. Yeah, you know, trying to sort of keep an exercise regime, making time. For those wonderful friends Social and family, those connections. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I miss hugging people. I know. You know? <laughs> so now I make time. And, I, you know, that's that's a form of showing, you know, I'm hugging you. I'm making time. We're sitting together over a meal. You know, it's just yeah. taught me just the balance of, of all the things that we value and making time for those things, including ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Including ourselves. Because yes. if you're mentally exhausted, you're drained, you're fatigued, what good are you to yourself, to your family, to your clients? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So speaking of the pandemic, because, mm-hmm. you know, as marketers, you know, marketing didn't stop. People, brands were still running campaigns. Clever brands didn't stop, you know, marketing their products, yeah. you mm-hmm. know. Have you seen a campaign in the last, you know, we've been in this pandemic almost two years, in the last, say, 12 to 18 years that you think really mm-hmm. resonated? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A- award-winning type. Yeah. So I'd say yes. I mean, there's been a lot of campaigns, but I'll talk to two campaigns that have struck me and I'll tell you why they struck me. So I'm very big on social impact. I think the world has become such a difficult place that 
even though I love campaigns that make us laugh, that engage us, you know, and there's so much humor going out, going on out there. But I'm really um, very keen and drawn towards campaigns that have a social impact. So brands like Nike, remember during the, you know, when, when Black Lives Matter um, sort of exploded, I'll say, across the world. Yeah. And they took a point of view and came up with this very simple but very direct you know, campaign and messaging around not being racist, you know, and it was so powerful and it takes a lot of courage for a big brand to have a strong point of view, particularly on something that that could be polarizing or seen as polarizing, you know, depending on who's looking at it, you know, and I loved that. And I think Gillette also did something similar with their yes. the best a man can uh, can get. And they had this whole campaign around the best a man can be. And it was them taking a point of view on men and on the social issue yeah. around what men should be and how they are acting and representing themselves in society and in relation to each other and re- in relation to women. In, and, you know, it kind of goes on the whole violence uh, sort of conversation and right. abuse. And it was a really strong point of view that could have had a backlash. Yeah. But didn't because these are real social issues. And I'm such a believer in brand purpose. And so for a brand to take on a point of view on a social issue and speak up, they are the ones that will influence society positively and help create the kind of society we all want to live in and feel safe in and feel happy in. So for me, I'm a really great believer in brands that take a point of view because it takes a lot of courage and it's it's courage that will shape society. Yeah, and that courage is the same courage that uh, if I'm a brand manager and I'm listening to you right now, I'm thinking, if I went with that idea to my leadership team and say, we want to take this point of view, we're going to do this campaign, the backlash I'll get, ah, what <laughs> yeah. are you thinking? Just go and run a price campaign, do a yeah. thematic on this, because it's taking us out of our comfort zone. Yes. So what do we need to do as marketers to push through so- some of those ideas, some of those um really campaigns based on a great insight that will still have a societal impact mm-hmm. and, and still be very effective from a marketing point of view. Because we know effectiveness is what will still, you know, help drive the business outcomes that we want. Mm-hmm. But we will we get that pushback. Mm-hmm. You know, in fact, we always say, um, uh, I, I, I like giving <laughs> this example from uh, Coca-Cola Share Coke campaign, mm-hmm. which originated in Australia, mm-hmm. which basically was remove the brand name from the product Coca-Cola and put my name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had this joke when Mod Cook saying, if that idea had originated in Nairobi, Kenya, then taken <laughs> to Atlanta and told Atlanta, we want to do this, we want to remove the brand name from the packaging mm. and put Waidera. <laughs> they would have been like, you guys, what are you thinking? Eh? <laughs> so, why is it here from Kenya, from Africa, mm-hmm. those, you know, amazingly courageous campaigns, we're not, we don't see a lot of them. I I don't you know what I don't know I don't know if it's a lack of courage I don't know if it's a lack of awareness and visibility about the power of doing that you know but I think to to kind of uh, infer or come take from what you said you know usually you're not doing one campaign you still want to push volumes or revenues etc so at any one point in time you've got a couple of campaigns maybe one is a kind of big thematic campaign and then you've got some that are more specific to you know passion points of consumers or more tactical Mm. and so on and I think there is an opportunity to do that but 
I'm not sure that within organizations, the people at the most senior level have time to have visibility of that. And so what is our role as brand managers or senior brand managers or marketing managers to really expose the wider team and the wider organization to the power of those campaigns and the impact of those campaigns. I think we have a job to do, to to sensitize, to educate, and to inspire the organization behind the power of social um, campaigns with a social point of view. And then find a way to to, uh, balance those messages with the more tactical messages, because at the end of the day, you still want to make a sale of that one product. So how do you find a way to, um, you know, to, to run multiple campaigns in a way that's seamless, but in a way that you're still you're differentiating your brand on a bigger on a bigger point of view. Yeah, because it's about um, in Diageo we call it around you know it's around our sustainability mm-hmm. um, agenda, yeah. uh, and one of them is I'll give an example of inclusivity and diversity. Mm-hmm. So we as, as marketing we take that and say what does inclusivity and diversity mean for us when uh, when we're creating marketing campaigns? Yeah. It could be. Um, what does you know? What does the ad look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it representative of you know the people, the consumers yeah. Yeah. Uh, behind the camera? What does you know? Who's actually shooting this? What is their perspective on how to shoot it? You know, mm-hmm. um, are there stereotypes that are being portrayed that we don't need them to be portrayed? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not like a must do, but it's part of our sustainability agenda because yeah. if we don't start doing that now. In 10, 15, 20 years from mm-hmm. now, we will not resonate with the consumer yeah. at all. Yeah. 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 That's really powerful. And you know, it takes brands like yours, like the, the EABL brands, to actually almost spearhead the way that that can be done. Because I think oftentimes smaller brands are a bit nervous about yeah. doing that. And it's almost like you, in a way, you give permission as big brands when you do it you give permission to smaller brands to have the courage or to find the courage to do it. Some do, whether or not the big brands do it. But I think, um, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's something to say for big brands leading in, in the way that, uh, that that is done. Very so I think good. it's awesome what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Good point. Speaking about your journey, you know, I can see how you, you know, your career progression, your own personal and professional development. Um, how did you get here? Was did you have a mentor? Did you have somebody who was guiding you and telling you this is where you want? I need you know you should go. This is how you should do it. Um, do you have a purpose? Do you know what does a change stand for? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, juicy questions those. So, um, you know, I'm a great believer in mentorship, and so I mentor and I coach um, quite a lot, uh, quite extensively. In fact, I give career tips on my Instagram at Attitude, and. I do that because, the, you know, a lot of young people in that age group of like 18 to, say, 30, many of them have started their working lives as freelancers. So they've never had the benefit of kind of the formal structure where we learn within, within a structured setting that, okay. that many of us in, in, in companies or in corporate settings have, have been able to do. And so I give very simple career tips. And that's my way of kind of mentoring or giving back, you know, four minutes or five minute uh, sort of um, career tips. But I'm a great believer in mentorship because I've been a beneficiary of of mentorship. Okay. Um, and I've mentored over many, many years, as I'm sure have you, and I'm sure you continue to do so, uh, because I was a beneficiary. So my mentor has been mentoring me for well over 20 years. Wow. Well over 20. I've had a couple yeah. of mentors, but he's been the constant. Okay. And it's so how been, did that relationship start? Did you 
go to him and say, look, I would like you to be my mentor. How do you even, you know, how do you get there? What what happened? I didn't, first of all, I didn't even know what mentorship was in those days. I was, okay. I was still quite young in corporate. He was my boss. I guess he saw potential. I guess he saw an opportunity to help sort of support and guide. And so he said, I'll be your mentor. And I remember we were so busy. I was double hatting at the time, two roles. Um, and I said, yeah, sure, you know, whatever kind of thing. But he constantly sort of guided me and gave me advice and gave me input and sometimes challenged me until I would be like, oh, my God, I'm going nuts with all this challenging. But guess what? It was a chance for me to learn and to grow. And he was so gracious in the way that he did it. And so he's been my mentor for over 20 years. He is a really, really good friend to this very day and still mentors me. I still bounce stuff off him when I really am doing something that's big and pivotal um, in my life. And um, I was fortunate that he decided to be my mentor. And I think a lot of people struggle with figuring out how do I get a mentor? And there's yeah. a number of ways that you can be do Before it. you get there, yeah. who, who is this mysterious not, mentor? Not even a mystery. I've talked about him a number of times. <laughs> Any chance I, I get just because know. he was good people. His name is Bill Egbe. He was my boss many, many years ago. I think it was in the... In the early 2000s. Wow. So I've known him for 20 years. I think it's great to just, you know, recognize him. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. He's yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Very gracious. I mean, this is a, a, a businessman. He, he was a very senior person um, in those days at Coca-Cola. And for him to be gracious enough with his time and mentor me and walk this career journey with me, I think money cannot buy yeah. the kind of value and the gift of what he gave me by being my mentor. So, you know. So what advice would yeah. you give to young or not even young marketers, marketers in general who maybe I don't work in a corporate environment, I don't have access to, you know, these great experienced marketers. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm an, you know, freelancing like you said or I have my own business or I work at an agency or I work for an SME. Mhm. How do you approach getting a mentor? Why is mentorship even important in the first place? Mm -hmm. What would you, how would you guide someone? So mentorship is important because, you know, there's different reasons that you go for a mentor. You can go for a mentor because you just kind of need overall guidance um, on stuff to do with maybe with your career or maybe it's more life, yeah. life stuff, you know. How do you navigate? I've had a lot of women... Um, that I've mentored around how you navigate as a career woman and you want to have a family and you know how do you just balance that and you know it's a juggling act but because you know I've been there and I've juggled and I've managed so you know I'm happy to sort of share my learnings and share my thoughts and and have a discussion around what they're dealing with so it can be a mentor that you want to engage on life stuff or you know just life Things and so you have to subjects. be clear about what it is you want to get out of the mentorship. Absolutely. Is it career progression? Is it just, you know, managing, you know, work-life balance? It could be, you have to be clear. You have to be clear and it could be a number of things. It might be a mentor on a technical thing. So, for example, mm. I once had a mentor because I, I really wanted to spend more time honing my skills, my financial skills. Because I was a marketer, but, you know, we're getting mm -hmm. much deeper into the financial side of things. And so I wanted to, to you know, just to, to walk hand in hand with this gentleman. He was our CFO at the time and just get co more comfortable in that space. You, It might be uh, you're a marketer, but you want to understand more about the, you know, commercialization process 
because that's a separate so docket a or the innovation very specific pr- process. To, yes, yeah. yeah. So you can have a technical mentor or a more general, I guess I'll call it life skills mentor. Yeah. Yeah. So that's I, quite yeah. important. I think in in fact, even in my own experience, um, uh, I have men. I this this one lady I I was mentoring, mm-hmm. and at the start of it, I did ask her that same question: What do you want to get out of this relationship? Yeah, and she said um, she wanted to move from working in agency. She wanted to work in corporate, mm-hmm. so it was a career progression type of thing. Yes. So over about a year, a year and a half, mm-hmm. uh, we had the mentoring relationship, and it was always geared mm-hmm. towards that's the end goal in mind. Yes. So. Um, the good news story, she did get into corporate. She got a, a really good job in corporate. And then I told her, now this relationship is over. Now our mentorship is done. And she's like, no, 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 no. I said, but we've accomplished <laughs> what we wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, now, if you have other needs, come and tell me. But we've actually, and so the mentorship relationship has to end now. Um, yeah. So we're parting ways. And it was really funny. It was like breaking up. Huh? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one example. Also, yeah. I think sometimes, you know, it's also have an end to it. So it's not dragging. I know you've had a long relationship, but it wouldn't always be that case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my other mentor, Exactly from Diageo. Mm-hmm. Um, again, senior leader. And I was fortunate because I do work in a corporate that I was I was mapped to him and he agreed yes. um, to take on this because he's a senior leader. He sits on the global leadership team. He's a busy person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think it also speaks to commitment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are committing. It's not a casual relationship. You're actually committing to help steer somebody in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. So for him, I went to him with a specific agenda. I said, look, uh, I'll name it. It's called Mark Sands. He's a, mm-hmm. a head of Global Beer, Diageo. And I said, Mark, you've been in the business over 20 years. You're very visible. You know how to influence others. I am struggling with that. Mm-hmm. My visibility is not there mm-hmm. um, because the kind of role I'm in, I have to always be influencing. Yeah. Um, so help me with that. Excellent. And that is the journey. And the relationship ended, you know. Yes. At some point, he's like, I think you've gotten to where you need to be. Yeah. Or if you're not, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this right. So it, it also ended mm-hmm. um, because also with an end goal, I had to work towards it. Yes. I can't be, you know, dragging out these sessions for years and years and I'm not making any progress either. Exactly. So we, I think which is a lesson because I know we were talking about this earlier. I'm sure you get um, uh, tons of requests to be a mentor mm-hmm. and you will get after this podcast is aired. A chain, can you be my mentor? What will you tell these people? So, to be a, you know, like you said, a mentorship, it's, it's a partnership. Yeah. In fact, I usually use a, a journal on my journey with my mentees because, number one, we want to see the progress. And I love what you said that yours, you were very clear and your mentor could also see when you got to the point where, yes, we've, we, we're where we're at. We've reached the destination and it's now time to part ways. You know, spread your wings, fly. You know, they're already seeing you flying. Um, so I normally do not take more than a certain number of mentors at mentees at any one point in time because it's quite time consuming and it's such a commitment. It is such a commitment. It takes a lot of time. So usually I won't take mentees unless I'm sure I can make the commitment on time. But one of the other things that that I do is I'm part of an organization. um, It's called ProsperMentor.app. And I'm a a, a founding member of ProsperMentor.app. And it's an app that enables you to actually access mentors online. And you see with digital, it's so much easier because we've got a group product. So you can come together, five of you, and be mentored. 
or you can do individual mentorship. Now, obviously, it's a paid service. And so the reason I was bringing that up is that if you're actually looking to find a mentor or have, you know, you know, have a mentor, you can access mentors by doing some research online and find organizations that actually mentor for free. But also, if you want to be quite, um, if you want a very specific mentor, then you can actually access mentors. We have like a hundred mentors on our platform um, and you can access them. It does come at a fee. But it's an investment you're making in but yourself. But it is an investment you're making in yourself. Which, which I'd like to also address the mentee side of it. Yes. So in my experience, I've had situations where the mentee themselves are mm. not invested. Yeah. So they wait for you to set up the meeting. So three months have gone by. I've not heard from you. Or even when they do come to the sessions, they're not really prepared. Mm-hmm. What, what do you do in those situations? No, that is totally not on. Number one, they're not valuing your time. Yeah. And your time is so precious. So, you know, there's a fundamental problem with that picture. They need to want it and they need to commit to it. And the other thing I think that's really important is at the beginning of the mentorship relationship or partnership, you agree on the rules of engagement. Okay. So if you're going to meet once a month for an hour and a half, you, you both commit to it, you diarize it, and yes. it's almost cast in stone. Yes, yes. And they cannot not turn up or they can't turn up without preparing. Yes. Because then they're not taking it seriously. Yeah. And that means they're wasting your time and theirs. And, you know, oftentimes those are actually grounds to end the partnership. Yeah. Because it's, it's a commitment and it's a respect. It's about respect, respecting each other's time. Respect, respecting your expertise and the fact that you've committed your very, very scarce resource, which is your time, there you to, go. To, to support them and help them and walk them on that, that phase of their journey. You mentioned, though, you're a mentor and you also do coaching. What's the difference between mentorship and being a coach? I find that mentoring tends to require that I, be, I give a lot more, I'm almost, I'm going to use the word more directive. Mm-hmm. I'm much more inclined to, much as I understand their solution, I work with them or, or their issue. I work with them on finding a solution and I'm much more proactive in giving suggestions about how they can work through issues or situations because of my experience. Okay. Now with coaching, there's, there's two ways that you approach coaching. One, they call it the push and pull, where the pull is where you're, you're, there's much more dialogue and the push is where you're much more directive and giving answers and giving solutions. Okay. And I find that with coaching, uh, from a coaching style perspective, I tend to try and pull the solutions from them and only move towards the center of, the, of that continuum where I'm giving more suggestions and more direction when I see that they're really struggling with it. And the other thing is when I coach, the coaching I tend to do executive coaching and I really target upper middle management and early C-suite. And I'm quite deliberate with that group because I feel like that's really where um, there's such a big struggle because it's, it's usually you're struggling to transition. You're kind of stuck and you're trying to get unstuck or you've just gotten into that, you know, high level position and whoa, this is a whole other world. The dynamics are so different. And so you need some support to navigate as an early C-suite entrant. Yeah. Yeah. So that's EXCO for for those who might not be familiar with the C-suite term. It's where you get into the chief or sort of the the executive executive, committee um, sort of level of the organization. Yeah. So I I hope that responds to it. You know, mentorship being much more directive and much more handholding where the coaching 
the solutions oftentimes are with the coachee. Yeah. You just kind of help pull those solutions out and, and guide, uh, but without being as directive as you would yeah. be in a mentorship situation. Okay. Um, on a lighter note, mm-hmm. in your experience, obviously you've worked with um, a lot of, or seen the work from other brands or corporates. Um, is there any particular sort of person in the marketing industry, maybe a CMO, um, a, a chief marketing officer or a marketing director that you respect greatly? It could be locally, globally. So I'm such a fan of Bozoma St. John. Okay. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't know if you've seen I her career. Her. Isn't she amazing? <laughs> She's amazing. I like, love her. She's had such a stellar career. She's worked in agency and then transitioned into corporate and worked with big brands. You know, she's now CMO for Netflix. For Netflix, right? You know, but she's worked with the Ubers and she's yeah. worked with PepsiCo and she's, you know, she's worked with big, heavy-hitting brands. But I think what I love about her is that she's, first of all, she's so authentic. Yeah, she is. She brings her whole authentic self to the table and doesn't make apologies for who she is. She's colorful and she's, she's so present. She's larger than life and she's not afraid to be controversial. Yeah. You know, and she has such a strong point of view, even on social issues. And she really brings women of color and black women specifically to the fore and brings out those conversations and is totally unapologetic as a, you know, black woman in all those spaces, many of which I don't think, you know, black women get to, you know, those tables. And as an African woman, and because a, she's Ghanaian. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, she's one of the people I really admire because she sat at the table and she has represented. And I always say it's people like that who sit at the table and have a voice and speak up, even when it's controversial, that pave the way for all of us coming after them. It's true. So I totally love her because she's such a trailblazer. So a lot of people will say, well, you know, that's not my personality. I'm not a very bold person or, you know, I'm an introvert. I'm not, you know, I will be there, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one with a loud voice. What would you say about that? I would say you can make yourself heard without being a loud voice. Okay, how? <laughs> I think you can, you can influence. I think it's about having a point of view And sometimes you can influence behind the scenes. So I know, you know, I'm an introvert. Me too. (laughs) Well, there we go. You know, and here we are having real conversations, you know. Actually, my my boss boss told me because he knows I'm an introvert. And he said, um, whether when you're in a meeting and you're not speaking, um, you're not you're not doing yourself justice. And I said, no, as an introvert, I'm listening. And trust me, my point of view will be known. My influence will come out. Yeah. I might not be the loudest person, you know, across the table trying to put a word in. I'm also reflecting mm-hmm. on what, you know, how to gauge this. So don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not yeah. disengaged. I'm engaged. Yeah. And I'll find my way to, you know, get my point heard. Exactly. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, there's a bit of a, I think there's confusion about the fact that being loud means you're present. Right. I think you can be present without being the loudest heckler in the room kind of thing. So we have our ways. And I I always encourage people, you may not be as outspoken or as loud, but you can still, as individuals, we have to get to that point of self-awareness where we understand ourselves and we understand how we can shift things, how we can move the needle, whether it's in society, whether it's in and the have organization. A, yeah, and have a strategy industry. on how to, Absolutely. based on your, how, like one of the things, that one of my, 
my tricks is I know the loud people yeah. on my team. Yeah. So I go and plant ideas with them. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know at the meeting. Yes. They'll be like, they're like ah. I'm like, yeah, I'm planting my point of view with you and I'm rallying, you know. I don't always do it well, but I found that that's also a strategy sometimes. Absolutely. I love that. I totally love that. In fact, that answers the question. How do you do it? Especially when you're an introvert. That's a wonderful, wonderful example of how you can do it. Yeah. You know, I once went for a, a guy who was very, very, very opinionated. And if I had the idea in the meeting room, he would kill it even if it was a good idea. And so I figured out I need to find a different way. Yes. And so I'd go to his office and we'd have this conversation and then I'd kind of do the same thing, kind of plant it. Yep. And then by the time we're done with that meeting two hours later, he's playing it back to me like his idea. And for me, that's okay because okay. I just want to get that thing done because I believe it's the right thing for the business and for go. the brand. So go. that's, I love your strategy. You that's the way to do it. There you go. So you can influence, <laughs> you can be that voice without being the loudest voice. Yes. You have to just find your way of getting it done. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about a time about when you, you know, you worked on an idea, strategy, and it came to implementation, execution, and it just flopped. It failed. What did you learn from that? What, you know, how did you pick yourself up? Is it just one time it happened? Is this, you know... Yeah. So obviously, when you've worked for over 25 years, you know, you, 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 you trip and yeah, fall. I'm sure you a have a times, few stories. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe my point is, yeah. because I'm sure you've had several experiences. Yeah. Um, and it's not, I'm not trying to pinpoint and say, you know, you're, you failed at something consistently. Yeah. It's more of, you know, the brand or the organization or the team did this and then it didn't work out and then you learned something. Yeah. But what you as a Cheng, what did you do differently after every time something did not work out the way you expected it to? Yeah. I've got a number of examples, but one of them was a campaign that we did um, way back in the early years of my career, let's say, um, of my FMCG career. You know, so we made a decision to run with a promotion at a time when it was the wrong time to run the promotion because everything shuts down in that market. And so we invested and we had this really innovative promotion idea. We implemented everything to the letter, but the promotion never delivered the numbers. And the reason was we didn't fully appreciate that the cultural context is such that when I say everything shuts down, but it completely shuts down. People pack their bags, they go, they fly off to wherever. And there's such a skeleton stuff, you know, in the, in the, in the office that there's barely anyone to implement. My biggest learning from that, first of all, we never brought in the numbers after spending all that money on the promo. But the one thing I remember is in a very big meeting where we had even some of our people from Atlanta in the meeting, I shared that as an example of a very painful learning, a great plan, great idea, beautifully planned in terms of you know, press, let's press play, we're ready. Mm -hmm. But the execution just fell flat because of that one thing that we needed to learn. Mm -hmm. And because I spoke about it openly in that meeting, I got such accolades for having the courage to speak about something that went wrong. And the reason I'm sharing that as one of the, the many examples I could give was that we have to give ourselves permission to fail forward. Yeah. It's okay if it doesn't work. Sometimes some things won't work. Yeah, the stars will not always align. They don't always align, Yeah, you know. But taking the learning from that and, con- and speaking about it 
and consciously making a decision to do it differently. But in all of that, the thing my organization did was they gave us permission to be, they made it safe for us to talk about it as well. So somebody listening could be like, you know what, I work for an SME, money is tight, budgets are tight, I launch a campaign, I lose a company, a few million shillings, I'll be fired. What am I talking about? What is failing bravely? I'll be fired. So let me now uh, look for somebody to blame this failure on Mm. and hide things. Mm. What would you say? Because that's the reality of a, a lot of organizations. Yeah, I think you're so right on that one. What I would say to that is you can pilot. It means you can do it in bite sizes. If you're cautious or fearful that... there's the risk that it could fail, which in the real world, actually, stuff can fail. Stuff happens. Life happens. So do your risk assessment. Do your risk assessment. But, you know, sometimes you don't have the luxury of doing the risk assessment, waiting, you know, you're being pushed. We need to start. Do it it in a smaller scale because that way you can sort of gauge and then you're not losing the millions of shillings. Maybe you're losing or you're risking a couple of hundred thousand as opposed to three or five million or however many. So if it's something, say say you're saying maybe new or innovative, pilot it first and then take the learnings. Absolutely. But the reason why I said risk assessment, I think is also us opening up our eyes. So I think many times maybe we're inward looking. We're we're just in the organization. Have we opened up our eyes and looked at what's a macro environment looking like? Yes. There's an election next year. Should I be spending or not spending or should I, you know, Yes. So are we externally opening up our eyes enough and looking at the environment? I think that's so key. We have I think to, it goes to that example you gave, right? Where in that market... Yeah, the reality that, yeah, is they was, were not... Yeah. They just don't work within that period of time. Right. They go on holiday. Right. And they, holiday means literally shutting down, yeah. you know? Um, so we, we have to understand the dynamics. We have to understand what's going on externally for sure. Um, I mean... I've got another example, just kind of linked to that, uh, maybe because I want to kind of qualify that. We worked on something. It was an industry we hadn't worked in before. Okay. But we came with all our passion and our enthusiasm and we were ready to change the world. We do a lot of social impact work and we we really, really love that. And so we'd done all the research, all the data from research, you know, all the the markets that had done or all the business um, institutions that had done this work, all the data showed that everything that we were doing, I mean, it was check, 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 check. Okay. And it was to do with fundraising. Okay. And I was so sure. So you have the research. It's validated. I, I researched myself. Uh-huh. And when we eventually rolled out, we rolled out everything to the letter, but we didn't raise the funds we needed to. We were able to drive awareness, you know, reach all of this. But we didn't raise the money. And so that was a really big learning. And for me, the biggest learning there also was because we were trialing it and we were doing it in a market that's not the host market of that institution, we shouldn't have been as optimistic and as gung-ho about what we were going to deliver. Because the fact is that the data we had was based on, on the market where we were marketing, but it was based on brands or institutions that are within that market. And therefore, they were familiar to that market. Mm -hmm. And we were coming from an outside market trying to fundraise in that market with a totally new brand that nobody knew anything about. You know? Yeah. So So some of those, yeah, assumptions. I get you. Yeah, they are assumptions and I think you have to manage your own expectations as well as the expectations of your team or your boss or your client. 
and don't overpromise. I think marketers sometimes we're so enthusiastic that we overpromise. So it's better to underpromise and overdeliver, like I they think, say. Well, just be cautious. <laughs> yes, well, if push comes to shove, yeah. But just just be cautious. You know, reel yourself in. Okay. Yeah. I'll end with you know this sort of reflective question um, around success. Mm-hmm. Um, what does success mean to you now? How do you define success? So, for me, success is about meaningful work and a balanced life. And let me qualify that a little bit. Um, so, my purpose is anchored on sort of impacting and empowering through knowledge. And it's all about imparting knowledge. So, whether it's the clients I work with, and as I do the work, carrying them along, or whether it's the trainings that I do, or the coaching or the mentoring, it's really all about imparting knowledge so that people are empowered in that specific area or subject. And so success for me is really about doing meaningful work. So meaningful work is work that has a social impact of sorts. Whether it's because I'm working with a woman-led organization and walking with that woman in doing her her strategy for the three to five-year strategy and then unpacking it into a one-year execution plan and walking with her through it, or whether it's, you know, working in a social impact space, maybe with an organization that's dealing with nutrition or in an organization that's dealing with empowering women, you know, through through knowledge and information or through access to finance. You know, for me, that that really, really fuels me. Yeah. So success for me is about the meaningful work. But also, like I said earlier, it's around finding the balance. So I'm gentle on myself as well. So you have found because I can I, I can tell you're doing a lot of meaningful work. Have you found the balance? I'd like to think I have because I love what I do. Okay. But I also know that there are days when I need to stop. I generally don't work on Fridays, for example. Yeah, hashtag goals. I need to. Eh. But it was, it, it's because I worked in corporate. That, you know, you know what? You, you, I'm sure if you start telling us. I mean, corporate, it can be a 20 hour day and yeah. it can be an eight day week. Yeah. Because that's just the reality. And so even if you love what you do, the truth is you're human and you need to stop and you yes. need to give yourself a minute. And a minute can be a day off. A minute can be working half day um, in the middle of the week. Right. You, you know what I mean? We have to be realistic about our thresholds and about what we need and listening to our bodies and our minds. Absolutely. Because physical and mental health is everything. Very well said. Any parting shots at Cheng? I think as marketers... We should be asking ourselves, are we doing justice to our profession? Are we being the marketers that are leading the charge and leading the conversation? Are we driving marketing in a digital world and in a digital way? If not, we need to really introspect and think about what are the things we need to do to move our profession forward and move it to the next level by doing great work and by leading the strategic conversation. Absolutely. We need to be transformational about Absolutely. everything we're doing. And Absolutely. Is, and if, if we haven't, if this isn't the time to do it, I don't know when. No, then we've lo- just get off the boat. Hop, hop, hop off the bike. You know, <laughs> if we're not doing it, hop off the bike. I hear you. We have a unique opportunity as marketers because of how the world has shifted. So really, it's, it's, it, the onus is on us. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Aching. It's been fantastic. You have imparted knowledge on me. You see, your purpose is, comes to life every minute. Uh, <laughs> you really have imparted a lot of knowledge to me and I'm sure to everybody who's listening. It's been really great having you on and good to meet you again. Finally, yes. yes. Thank you so much, my dear. Thank you too, Idera. It's been such a pleasure and I'm excited to watch your journey as well. And I think you guys are also doing some really amazing work to shift conversations in the market and for us as marketers. So thank you for everything that you're doing as well. Asante. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. This is the iMarket Podcast brought to you by the Marketing Society of Kenya, EABL and Capital FM.